Now, one of my pet hates, um, sorry if this is you, but one of my pet hates is when people talk about their worst character traits and they say, oh, my big problem is I'm just too kind or I'm too forgiving or I'm too servant-hearted. And that always um, makes me think, well, that's not a problem, is it? It's good to be kind. It's good to be servant-hearted. It's a wonderful thing to be forgiving. If only my best traits were as good as your worst ones. Anyway, I was pondering uh, this bit of Exodus and I realised afresh that someone's goodness actually is a problem. A huge problem. It's God. God's goodness is a massive problem. God's glory is a problem. It's a problem for him if he wants to relate to us and it's a problem for us if we want to relate to him. The very thing that draws us towards God, his goodness and his glory, is actually a huge problem. And my first point tonight is the problem of God's glory. The problem of God's glory. Just look with me at verse 35 of chapter 32 of Exodus. Get your Bibles open and your heads in there. Verse 35. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God is saying to his people that he cannot go with them any longer. He says he'll keep his promise he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob about giving them the promised land. But he himself, his very presence, his glory and his goodness will not go. And this is a huge tragedy because the whole point of rescuing the people from Egypt was that they would know him. And experience him. But they can't have God because the end of verse 3, he says, I might destroy you on the way. It's pretty terrifying, isn't it? Look at verse 5. God repeats as if to, we haven't got the point. For the Lord has said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now often we think the reason we can't come to God is because of our badness. And obviously that's not wrong, is it? The people here in Exodus, they're a stiff-necked bunch. They're idolaters. They worship a calf instead of their glorious God. They moan all the way. Of course that's true, but there's far more to it. It's not just that that we're bad and and God is like neutral. And when we read the Creed, I don't know about you, but um, I love the first bit. Uh, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love. Brilliant. We love that stuff, don't we? But the last bit was a little bit unsettling, wasn't it? He never lets the guilty go unpunished. If God were neutral uh, when it came to sin, um, he'd just shrug his shoulders, wouldn't he? The whole golden calfing wouldn't be a big deal. He'd be like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. And um, if God were to look at the whole world and all the evil injustice, which is everywhere, isn't it? I don't need to convince you of that. And he wasn't blazingly good and glorious he just shrug his shoulders and say it doesn't matter. 
And that would be terrible, wouldn't it? A God who didn't care. God is not neutral when it comes to sin. If God were neutral, then nothing would matter. Our sin wouldn't matter. But the problem with the golden calf incident, which has happened just before, is that it's been an affront and an attack on God's very glory. Our problem is far deeper than our badness. Our problem is also God's goodness and his glory. God is blazingly glorious and good. That's why he might destroy them. Our badness is bad, but his goodness is almost too good, if you like. See, if God really is the most glorious, precious, most worthy thing in the whole universe, then to worship anything other than him is offensive to him, isn't it? It offends God's glory when we live for anything else. I don't know what it is for you, but there's so many temptations, things to make the most important thing, to see their worth as being far greater than God's, whether it's a guy or a girl, uh, your child, uh, that promotion, those grades. It's been a big deal for you lot, hasn't it, recently? Uh, Maybe it's the house. These are all things which tempt us so much, aren't they? We think they are so much more worthwhile than God. And yet, it offends his glory. When we live like they are worth more than him, when these things become more precious to us, more awe-inspiring than he is, then something must have gone terribly wrong, mustn't it? And it's tragic. It's tragic. It's tragic for us because we don't see how good God is. And it's far worse because God is opposed to us. It puts us in opposition to him. God hates it when we don't recognise his glory. God is not neutral. He is glorious and he is good. Our problem is not just our badness, but his glory and his goodness. I think his glory and his goodness would kind of burn us up. Just look at verse 20. But God said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. No one can see God's glory and live. No one can see God's goodness and survive. No one can enter God's presence and not be consumed. Now, my mum, whom I dearly love, um, I remember when I was younger, she used to tell me, um, Joe, do not look directly at the sun or you will go blind. Um, I think it maybe is an old wives' tale. My mum is old and she is a wife, so that probably doesn't um, put the two together. Um, but I remember I looked directly at the sun. Um, I looked for quite a long while and I mean, it did hurt after a long while. But... But you get the point, you can't stare at the sun for too long without it really hurting, can you? And um, if you get too close to the sun, I hear it's pretty hot and you might burn up. And if you like, it's the same with God. It hurts to see God in all his glory. You can't stare at him without it burning you up. You'd melt. To get too close to God puts you in grave danger. Your badness... My badness plus his goodness equals destruction. The problem is God's glory. And my guess is there are some people here tonight who who think it a small thing to wander into God's presence. But God is not neutral. He is blazingly glorious and good. No one can strut into his presence. Not even Moses 
And Moses wasn't even there at the golden calf incident. He was up on the mountain with God. But not even he can enter God's presence. Not fully. God has promised to give these people um, a land, but not himself. That's the judgment on them. He'll remove his presence from them. It's like, for some people, it would probably be the perfect religion, if you like. Just look with me at chapter 33 and verse 3. Uh, God says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. But it seems like quite a good deal, doesn't it? I mean, they get a land flowing with milk and honey, which might go sour, I guess, in our very refrigerated. But it seems it's a place of bounty and blessing. They seem to get everything they possibly want, don't they? The promised land itself. And they have no God to worry about, no God to please or to keep happy. They get the good things, but don't have to deal with God himself. Perhaps seems a little bit of a sweet deal, doesn't it? Good stuff with no God stuff. And maybe I see this attitude in myself that I, I desire this. I want this. You know, I want forgiveness, but I'm not all that bothered about God all the time. I just want to know I'm forgiven. I enjoy good food, a nice home, but I'm not very often very thankful to the God who gave it to me. I like the things. And so often we want the perfect place to live in forever, don't we? but not the God who's in charge of it. Here's a question which has plagued me as I've been preparing for tonight. If God were were to offer me tonight a heaven with all my best friends, with no pain, no sickness, no death and no God, would I take him up on his offer? I'd be really tempted but that just goes to show I don't really know him. I don't really know how glorious and good he really is. We live like having the good things is the goal. But it's not. God is the goal of our salvation and knowing him and his glory and his goodness. And yet there's one person in this passage who won't stand for it. He does not want a religion like this. Moses. Moses shows us secondly the desire for God's glory. The desire for God's glory. And just look with me at verse 12. And Moses says to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And Moses is quite frank with God, isn't he? He thinks he can say anything to him. And he demands to know if he and the people will have God's presence with them. He wants to know if God would really abandon them. Just give them the land, but not himself. And I think the reason is because Moses knows that a promised land, without the God who made the promise, is pointless and tragic. Pointless and tragic. Uh, But the Lord replies to Moses in verse 14. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And God says, no, no, Moses, I will come with you. You will have my presence. You will see my glory. You will see my goodness. But check out Moses' response. Verse 15. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? 
for Moses. A personal relationship with God is not enough. It's not enough. He pleads for the Lord to give his glory and his presence to all the people. Unless your presence goes with us. What's the point, Moses says? If I have it and they don't, what's the point? It seems that Moses is committed to experiencing God's glory, not just for himself, but for all of God's people. It seems that Moses would rather stay in the desert and have God than live in plenty without him. It seems to Moses that to not have God renders all his good things, well, is meaningless. Because knowing and experiencing God in all his glory is the mark of God's people. Wanting God more than any of his good things is a sign that you are really his. I guess there may be some here who have never really had the desire for God above his good things. If not, then the question is, the question for me and the question for you is, do I really know this glorious Lord? If I think his things are better than him, then I'm mistaken. Now, I remember a friend of mine when I was back at school. His name was Mark. I won't tell you his second name in case he ever has to hear this because this is sadly not very nice. Um, he was, uh, I say he was a friend. I'll invert that in commas. Now, um, Mark was perhaps a bit dull, but Mark did have two things about him, kind of two redeeming features. He had a Super Nintendo, and his mum cooked a lot of turkey burgers. And um, I'll tell you, I loved Super Nintendo. Absolutely love Super Nintendo, and I love probably more than Super Nintendo turkey burgers. I don't know what it was in, in my house. I mean, we were poor. We were poor in Lowestoft. Um, but my mum, we never, we never had turkey burgers. I think maybe my mum was confused by the advertising about golden breadcrumbs, and maybe she thought they were made with gold and too expensive for the Houghton household. Um, but the thing was, I loved Super Nintendo, and I loved turkey burgers. And I knew if I went round to Mark's to play Super Nintendo and have turkey burgers, it would be the best thing ever. But I didn't love Mark. I didn't love Mark at all. And I was his friend because I liked the things I got out of it. Super Nintendo and turkey burgers. And I'd be like, at school, oh, Mark, you're brilliant, you're brilliant, you're brilliant. Let's play Mario Kart again. Or um, I'd be like, oh, when I come around, get your mum to cook turkey burgers. It'll be great. Uh, but I didn't spend any time with him. I wasn't interested in him. I mean, I was horrible, wasn't I? It'd be horrible to be treated like that, wouldn't it? It's a horrible thing to do. And yet I reckon I can do this with God, and maybe you can too. We want his good things, but not him. If I didn't have Mark, then I wouldn't have a Super Nintendo, and I wouldn't have turkey burgers. But if I don't have God, well then I've got nothing. Moses sees that if you don't have the Lord, then you don't really have a promised land. Having God is better than a million promised lands, according to Moses. Moses says, verse 18, one of the greatest prayers in all of the Bible, I reckon. Verse 18, he says, Now show me your glory. Now show me your glory. Let me experience your presence and your glory and your goodness. What a prayer. God, I want you for you. I want to know you above all things. And I want you for all your people. I want everyone to know just how good and amazing you are. But here's the shock. Verse 18, Moses says, Now show me your glory. 
And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. God's answer is yes and no. You cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. It's the problem of God's glory again. Walking into the presence of a glorious and good God will mean death. It's a death trap. Even for Moses, the one who desires God's glory above everything else. It's a bit like getting too close to the sun. But God, did you see, makes a concession, verse 22. He says, When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. God says, you can see my glory-ish, kind of the back of it, if you like. Kind of like looking at the sun with sunglasses on. Kind of veiled, concealed. You'll see his glory, but not in a full way, just the back. And here I am banging on about God's glory and how we should desire it, and God's answer is no. You can't have it. Maybe we should just settle for God's good things. But I reckon the amazing shock here is not only that Moses can't have God's glory, the amazing shock is that everyone in this building can. We can. We're in a better position than Moses. So thirdly, the revelation of God's glory. And just turn over to chapter 34 and verse 6. Then God reveals his glory. Verse 6, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. God's glory is seen in the proclamation of his name, in his compassion, his grace, his patience, his love his faithfulness, his forgiveness, his justice, his punishing of the guilty. And Moses only sees the back of it, the back of his glory. Because at this point in the Bible, God hasn't fully revealed himself yet. He's not fully revealed himself at this point in God's word. You see, God has shown compassion, hasn't he? Uh, When he listened to the people's cry from slavery in the first few chapters of, of Exodus... He's shown patience as the people moan and moan, even after he's rescued them. He's shown love and grace to these Israelites who are a thoroughly unlovely bunch, frankly. He's shown justice by punishing Pharaoh and even punishing his own people for the golden calf incident. There seems to be a problem within God, though, doesn't there? Because his glory means that he can't dwell amongst sinful people. He can't meet them face to face because God is both loving and just. He is patient and yet he punishes. So the question I reckon that Exodus will leave us with is how can a God like this live with people like them and like us? How? How can it possibly be possible? Well, that's a lot of possibles in one sentence, isn't it? How can God possibly live with people like us? How can his presence come near us? How can we see him face to face and not die? 
is it at all possible for us to see God's glory? Sunglasses off, if you like. To see his glory full frontal. Well, in the New Testament, we read these words in John chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word here is Jesus. Jesus shows us God's glory, not just the back of it. We see in Jesus God's glory, sunglasses off. Jesus is the full frontal glory of God. Grace and truth, love and justice, patience and punishment. But how does he make it possible? Well, the judgment for Israel at the start of chapter 33 was the removal of God's presence from them, wasn't it? The removal of his presence. It's the same judgment we deserve when we live for other things. Yeah, what happens to Jesus? Uh, Jesus hangs on the cross. He experiences the removal of God's presence, doesn't he? As he hangs there for you and for me. And why does he do it? So that we can have it. So that we can have God's presence and his glory. We can come into him and know him. On the cross, Jesus is removed from the glory presence of the Father so that we can have his glory presence now and forever. Jesus demonstrates the love, the grace, the compassion, the faithfulness, the forgiveness, and the justice of the Lord. Our badness is punished in Jesus, isn't it? His love is demonstrated in this act of sacrificial love. And Jesus dying in our place enables us to stand freely in God's glory, in his presence. He doesn't just deal with our badness. But he deals with God's goodness because Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. And this means instead of being burned up as we enter God's presence, we can stand there and bask in it. If you want to see God's glory, sunglasses off, and then stare at your Saviour dying on a cross. See, as we end, how can we know that we've really experienced God's glory. How can we know? Well, just look with me at chapter 34 and verse 8. And Moses, after seeing God's glory, he bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favour in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and sin and take us as your inheritance, he said. I reckon there's three quick things to see whether you've really experienced God and you know him. Uh, There's worship, you're aware of your sin, but you're totally secure. Worship, aware of your sin, and yet totally secure. Of worship, uh, Moses goes straight to the ground and he sees God's absolute worth. He sees God for who he really is and he gives his life to him, doesn't he? See, gazing at God's glory revealed in Jesus, hanging on a cross, will help you see just how much God is worth. You'll see his true goodness and his true glory. If you want to become a more worshipful person, keep gazing at Jesus. What else happens to Moses, verse 9? 
he realised that there are stiff-necked people, wicked and full of sin. And of course, as you gaze at God's glory and Jesus hanging on a cross, we start to see the full horror of our sin, don't we? We realise afresh that we are stiff-necked in nature. We see the idols we're in after and how they're nothing compared to our glorious God and Saviour. And it will drive us to our knees. And finally, even though you, if you've experienced God's glory, you're completely aware of your sin, you're not in pity or helpless. You're totally secure. Because at the end, he says, take us as your inheritance. He knows that the Lord has paid for his people at great cost. Gazing at Jesus, we will know that we belong to our Lord and we will see the great lengths he goes to get us. We are his inheritance. He could not be any more secure. See, God is truly glorious and good. Let me just read out his name as we finish. And ask yourself this question. Do you know him? And the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children from the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Do you know him? Is he the most precious thing in the world to you? Let's pray. Compassionate and gracious God, God of justice and love, uh, we ask that you would show us your glory, that we would see who you are, just how worthy of our praises you are, that we might know you and obey you. For all in this room tonight, I ask that you would reveal yourself afresh, that we might gaze on your Son and know you better. And we pray this in his name. Amen.